This is the Vanguard Podcast. I'm Gavin. And I'm Zach. And today we're so pleased to welcome to the show a member of Virginia House of Delegates, Lee Carter, recently announced candidate for governor of Virginia. How's it going today, Lee? Pretty good. Thank you so much for having me on. I do appreciate it. Yeah, we're really stoked to talk to you today. Appreciate your time. We're really excited to talk to you, Lee. And I was just so excited to see um, your announcement that you dropped the other day. Uh, If anyone's listening that may not be familiar, um, Lee has been a very outspoken uh, member of the Virginia House of Delegates, an outspoken socialist. You were endorsed by the DSA when you um, won back in 2017 and defeated a Republican incumbent. And um, you're pretty much one of the most outspoken, if not the most uh, outspoken elected socialists in the United States, I would say. It's really um, cool to have you down there in Virginia, really repping those values and you know, legislating as such. And as you've declared your candidacy for governor, um, do, you, do you really see your campaign leaning into those values uh, to define yourself to the people of Virginia? Or do you think you might have to downplay some of those socialist values to succeed electorally? Because you know, Virginia is clearly a pretty blue state at this point, I would, say, I would think it's safe to say, but I, I have heard the state described as more of a Biden blue than a Bernie blue. So could you speak to that maybe a little bit and uh, strategically what you're planning on? Yeah. So the biggest thing to remember is that, um, you know, I, I learned this very, very early on in my first campaign in 2017. You know, I, I made the joke to to my staff and a couple of my supporters, like, you know, you got to lean in because if you're to the left of Barry Goldwater, they're going to call huh. you Stalin. I didn't realize that that would be literal. I mean, my opponent in 2017 sent a mailer to, as best as I can tell, around 11,000 homes um, that had sort of, you know, the the Mount Rushmore of communism, right? You know, Marx, Lenin, Engels, Stalin, Mao, Carter. And it was talking about my healthcare policy. Because, you know, if there's one thing that people remember Stalin for, it's health insurance, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> Makes sense. Um, but, but I, you know, that, that solidified that early notion that I had that it doesn't matter if you run away from what you believe or not, like they're going to call you what they're going to call you. Um, I mean, the, the Republican party called Joe Biden, uh, you know, a radical, a radical socialist. They, they called Barack Obama, radical socialist. They, they called, uh, they called the Clintons communists and said, you know, they have the communist news network, CNN on their side, right? Like this is for decades and decades and decades. uh, The Republican party's entire MO has been to just red bait as if it's still the cold war and that doesn't work anymore. And so, you know, instead of trying to run away from any of the attacks that they're going to send after me and you know, those attacks are going to come regardless of what I do. I just go ahead and I lean in, right? You know, whenever they, they make these attacks, I mock them. I say, you know, what is this, 1984? Like, you know, are, are, we, are we filming a remake of Red Dawn? Like, come on, guys. Um, and, and I just talk about the actual issues. You know, I talk about the kind of economy that I want to see in the Commonwealth of Virginia, which uh, is a, an economy that is owned and operated by the people of Virginia, specifically the people that do the work, not outside investors. Because when you have your, your economic engines um, that are owned and operated by the people who work there, there's a lot of things that are just never going to happen, right? Offshoring is never going to happen because the people who would have to vote to do the offshoring are never going to vote to fire themselves, right? There's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of things that conventional businesses consider externalities, like, like environmental consequences mm-hmm. of what they do that all of a sudden become integral to the decision-making process because 
you know, polluting the air, polluting the water is not something that you can just, uh, you know, put the cleanup cost on the government anymore. Um, when the workers are the ones making the decisions, they're not going to vote to pollute the air that their children breathe. They're not going to vote to give their own kids cancer to save 5%. It's not going to happen, right? So, so it's, it's all about fundamentally restructuring the balance of power within the workplace and making sure that people who work day in and day out are also the ones making decisions in the workplace. Yeah, I think that point that you make is so important, right? And I think it's a mistake, frankly, that a lot of, uh, you know, progressive left socialist candidates, you know, broadly make, right? They placate these arguments that are just frankly absurd, right? You said, if you're running to the left of Barry Goldwater, they're going to, you know, call you a communist. And, and I think that's really apt. And I'm wondering, you know, when you bring these ideas to regular working people, you know, as I'm sure you've done countless times throughout your you know, career as a politician, you know, what is the reaction to that? How do they react to you know, restructuring these things when you say we need to completely restructure that? I imagine there's a lot of apathy, a lot of people who believe that you know, we can't restructure these things. How do you convince them that we can? I mean, everybody who works for someone else for a living has this feeling in the back of their mind like they're getting ripped off because they are, right? You know, if you, if you go to work, and you get paid $20 an hour by the company, it's because the work that you're doing for the company is worth at least 21, right? But more likely probably 200 or $300, right? So, so there's this disconnect in the back of everybody's mind between what I actually do with my hands and what I see in my paycheck. And so, you know, when you start talking about these issues, people, people really feel it, right? Whether whether they're on board with the analysis or not, it taps into this sort of emotional, kind of like lizard brain kind of response where it's like, yeah, I have been getting ripped off. And yeah, I mean, that, that was even a part, of, a part of my journey to these political positions. I didn't start off as a socialist. Um, you know, I, it was a very long journey, um, but, but you know, the, the first step on it was, um, actually at work, like way before I decided to run for office, I was fixing cancer therapy equipment and, and I was making what I thought was good money. Um, you know, I was getting paid, um, I think it was 35 an hour. Um, and I was like, man, like this is the most money I've ever made. Maybe the most money I'm ever going to make. This is great. And then I saw an invoice that one of my customers had left out um, in the control room from my machine. And I realized the company was charging like $400 an hour for me to be there. I went, oh my God. And I, you know, I didn't think about it for a while after that, but, but it, it sort of built this sort of kernel of dissatisfaction that just kind of grew and grew and grew because it was that moment that I realized I'm being ripped off every single minute, every single day that I'm at work, I'm being ripped off because I'm not the one that makes decisions in the company. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting story. And I think that a lot of people, uh, you know, just having experiences in the workforce is that radicalizing, you know, thing that happens for them, because it is so obviously unfair, increasingly obvious uh, in that. So, you know, very interesting story. Um, another area where you're, you know, unique from other Democrats, I would say, uh, is your embrace of gun rights. And despite the fact that, uh, you know, most gun regulations that are commonly proposed by Democratic lawmakers, like, you know, banning of bump stocks or the, ending the gun show loopholes, I would consider to be pretty common sense, pretty moderate. Um, 
that being said, do you think that the Democratic Party has been mistaken in branding themselves as the anti-gun party, uh, especially in a state like Virginia? Yeah, I really do. Um, you know, obviously, I did I did five years in the Marine Corps. Like, if there's one thing that the Marines know, it's firearms. Yeah. The government makes sure of that. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, I think I think the Democratic Party um, has seen. Uh, a major focus of its efforts on disarmament, which, um, you know, from an institutional perspective within the Democratic Party, it makes sense for them because there's a lot of big money donors who are very interested in funding anti-gun campaigns. But for the people, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And electorally, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, because, you know, when you, when you look at our history, um, through the history of this country, there are periods of low risk for political violence and periods of high risk for political violence. And I think right now we're in one of those high risk periods. Um, you know, certainly we've seen it with the Nazi attack on Charlottesville in 2017, which happened here in Virginia. Um, and, you know, we've seen it with uh, the, the Proud Boys attacking DC and Portland and Seattle and you know, cities across the country. Um, and, and you've got these groups that go around and then there's just this, um, mass street violence coming from the extreme right that targets, um, you know, it targets a couple of individuals that have, that have drawn their ire, but usually what ends up happening is they gather around where they think that individual will be, and then they scatter out and they spread that violence amongst the population, right? They, so they attack targets of opportunity. And, you know, we've, we've seen infiltration by the extreme right in the police, uh, over the decades, the FBI has even warned about how many Nazis there are in local police forces. Um, we've seen, hell, on Christmas Day, there was, uh, you know, the Sheriff's Department, whose headquarters is less than a, a mile away from where I'm sitting right now, had, um, you know, someone uncovered in their ranks that was uh, posting on Parlor about how they wanted to assassinate local politicians. Like, this is it's a very that's rage against problem. the machine 101, man. Some of those who work forces are the same that burn crosses. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I don't, I, I'm not naive enough to think that law enforcement alone will be able to solve this problem and keep people safe because that Venn diagram is not two separate circles as much as I wish it would be. It's not, and it probably never will be. And so, um, you know, my, my line in the sand is, you know, yeah, there, there are some, measures that keep people safer, like background checks and getting rid of bump stocks. But, but, you know, overall, you know, I am never going to do anything that binds the ability of vulnerable people and vulnerable communities to, uh, to enact self-defense and community defense, right? You know, when, when the Nazis come to town to beat people, they should see an armed response from the people. And that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. It's a very uncomfortable thing to talk about, but it's real because that's the only way we're gonna be able to keep people safe is if the people are keeping the people safe. And you can't do that with thoughts and prayers. Yeah, I think that's really fair, especially with what we've seen over the summer. Uh, some of the, you know, all black militias that we saw take to the streets in response to the, you know, killing of George Floyd and the murder of, uh, you know, Breonna Taylor and so many others. Uh, I think it was a necessary show of force from those communities that, you know, they're not just going to keep taking that abuse, be it from the police or, you know, from racist, you know, Nazis that are members of their own community potentially. So I do think that's a good point and a good 
way to look at it. One other thing I'm interested that you briefly touched on there is you said that there might be, you know, groups funding uh, the d- disarmament. Obviously, we often hear about the NRA as being a corrupting influence within D.C., uh, you know, on the other side of the aisle, uh, responsible for lack of action on gun control. But I'm interested to hear a little bit more on what you referenced there, where there might be uh, groups or organizations that are actually interested in, you know, the d- the disarmament of the population. Well, yeah, I mean, you've got you've got the pro-gun billionaires, uh, you know, the the Koch brothers, your Sheldon Adelsons of the world, your NRA uh, donors that want no regulations whatsoever. Uh, and then on the Democratic side, you've got your anti-gun billionaires, like your your Michael Bloomberg's, who want no guns whatsoever. And the reality is that you know we have to be somewhere in between. There has to be some regulation to make sure that, because there are some people who cannot be trusted with a firearm, but not many. Um, But you also can't take all the guns away, right? Because then that leaves people vulnerable to mob violence from the extreme right. And so, um, you know, my my position that people who Nazis want to kill should be able to stop Nazis from killing them is a position that is common sense, that is supported by the overwhelming majority of the public but it's I also think it's a necessary every other politician in America. Yeah, and I think it's a necessary <laughs> you know, because it's it unspoken part of criminal justice reform, right? If we're going to have defunding the police, if the police are going to be a, an element of, uh, uh, if we're going to, you know, reduce the police presence in our community, right? You're going to be uh, putting communities are going to have to, as in a sense, be responsible for policing themselves, which I think provides a lot of benefits that people have talked about. Uh, but they're going to have to have the resources and the tools to do that. And I don't know why people are so much more uh, comfortable giving those tools to like, you know, the police, the essentially just mob rule gang, you know, uh, with, you know, a monopoly on violence, whereas essentially you're, you're just democratizing access to weapons of self-defense, which is something that I am, I think Gavin and I would both agree that we're here for. One of the things that I, I would like to just inquire about with you is something Gavin and I were talking about before the show, you know, as two leftists, as two guys who have never been particularly interested in firearms, I find myself, you know, relatively uninformed on the issue. I can see when I look outside that there's clearly an epidemic of gun violence. You know, we see in the in America so much more devastation in that capacity, whether it occurs in mass uh, shootings or whether it occurs on the streets of places like our own hometown of Kansas City, which has one of the highest rates of gun violence deaths per capita. Uh, I'm wondering, how do we solve that? And uh, to what component is, uh, you know, things like mental health and providing resources and community access to resources uh, part of solving that problem as opposed to just limiting access to guns? Well, uh, first of all, I'd like to stipulate that, that people who are struggling with mental health issues are far more likely to be victims of gun violence mm-hmm. than perpetrators. And so, um, you know, there's this standard right-wing deflection where anytime you bring up violence, they, they start talking about mental health as, as a cure for that. But it's not, it's not, going, it's not going to be because you're, mm-hmm. you're sort of blaming the victims for what happened to them. And that's something that I'm never going to engage in. Um, but you know, the, the reality, when you look at the numbers uh, about gun violence, the reality is that the overwhelming majority um, of, of gun violence incidents are, are with stolen handguns, right? But then what does the Democratic Party do? The Democratic Party tries to make it harder to legally buy a long arm. Why? Like, you know, the, the problem is here and the Democrats' proposal is here and they're two separate things. Um, and, and, uh, you know, it's, it it just goes to show that, that the political class in this country 
really is only interested in using this issue as uh, a wedge in elections. Um, you know, they, they drive on, you know, the Republicans drive their turnout with fear that the, the Democrats are going to take your guns. Um, and the Democrats drive their turnout with fear that, you know, if the Republicans have their way, then your kid's going to get shot. And the reality is neither. The reality is that the overwhelming majority of people um, who have firearms are responsible gun owners. There is a problem with handguns in particular being stolen and then being used in crimes. But there have been very, very few policy proposals on the national stage that actually get at that problem. Yeah, I think that's Oh, sorry, Zach, were you going to say something? Oh, well, I was just going to say that's sort of the modus operandi for the Democratic Party, right? Uh, you know, false equivalencies, pivoting, you know, pretending to take action on something while letting the crux of the problem continue to fester and grow. Um, I don't want to pivot too hard, uh, but I did want to ask you about another issue that has been noticed with the Democratic Party uh, taking, you know, becoming just as much an enemy of left and, you know, uh, popular uh, working class policy as the right, you know, Patrick Wilson of the Richmond Post-Dispatch, uh, who covered your campaign in depth in 2017, observed uh, that people like the Democratic Party, people in the Democratic Party would have preferred uh, that he not cover you at all, and frankly, prefer that you lose, saying, quote, the party like the Republicans in Virginia are so closely tied to the big monopoly uh, that Carter stood against, um, that they would have rather see you be defeated. Uh, could you talk about one, uh, your fight against big energy and your belief in antitrust uh, laws and uh, breaking up the big monopolies and also just, uh, you know, what it's like running against two parties at once? Yeah, I mean, I, I really have been running against two parties at once uh, for my entire time in the House. Um, you know, in my first term, I actually uh, I, I voted against uh, the multi-billion dollar Amazon deal. Uh, I, I voted against a similarly corrupt deal to give $70 million to Micron, the semiconductor manufacturer in my home district. Um, you know, I was intentionally excluded by both parties from all the negotiations around that because they knew that I would object. Um, and then they ended up actually having a Republican from six hours away put in the bill to give $70 million to this company that wanted to expand their factory in my district. Um, so, you know, there's, there's this bipartisan economic consensus uh, around trickle-down economics. But we've seen, and we've been trying this for 50 years, and it's never worked. Uh, so, you know, when, when someone comes in and talks about busting up monopolies, uh, putting economic power in the hands of working people, uh, when we talk about how economic development really should function to serve the people rather than serving corporate interests, it gets a backlash from both major parties. And so, um, you know, my, my local Democratic committee was helpful, but the Democratic Party of Virginia as a whole um, sort of likes to pretend that I don't exist. You know, the, they'll do kind of the bare minimum to say, oh yeah, we helped him. But, you know, you look at, you look at the amount of money they spend in my race versus a neighboring district. And, you know, they'll spend four five, six times as much money in the neighboring district even though that race is not as close. Yeah. Um, and, it's, and it's because, you know, they, they have to keep up appearances that we're all on one team, but at the end of the day, their lives are gonna be a lot easier when they're talking to their donors if I'm no longer a factor. Well, that's funny that you um, 
you know, have avoided or they've been able to kind of just ignore you up until this point. But now that you're literally running for governor, um, you know, they're going to have to confront. They're going to have to give you the Upton Sinclair treatment. Yeah, the Upton Sinclair (laughs) treatment. Exactly. Um, And if you and you've pledged to, you know, only accept small dollar donations in this race, race, which is super admirable and something that, uh, you know, we wish that all politicians would uh, pledge. However, that's not the case. And I'm guessing that your opponents in this race will not only uh, you know, not be following such principles when it comes to campaign finance. But I imagine that the Virginia Democratic Party, as you referenced, is probably already in the process of finding the perfect milk toast candidate to prop up with big money, someone who's probably not a socialist. And I'm just wondering what your strategy is to overcome that, you know, big money gap that you're going to be up against, and also how you're going to force the media to cover your candidacy, because often it seems like uh, when it comes to successful leftist candidates, um, they really understand that ability to force the media coverage, to force the conversation in their direction, rather than just allowing themselves to be sidelined by the establishment. Yeah, um, you know, I've I've never taken a single dime from for profit uh, for profit corporations or industry interest groups. Uh, you know, I had a, a few you know in my first campaign that tried, and I returned the checks with a very polite you know, thank you, but I only accept contributions from individuals. Uh, But Virginia has no limits whatsoever on campaign contributions, right? Mm -hmm. The only restriction is you have to be an American citizen, a green card holder, or a corporation from somewhere in America, right? Those are the only limits. Um, And so, you know, we had in in 2019, there's a a, a Republican who uh, got a half a million dollar check from a casino owner in Illinois, a single check for a half a million dollars. And that was perfectly legal, completely fine. Um, And that was for a house race. And there's a hundred house seats in Virginia. So when we're talking about a statewide race, you know, we're talking about Ralph Northam raised like $31 million, right? For Um, a state race? Yeah, for a state race. Um, And you know, in this primary, I'm running against a multimillionaire who is very closely connected with the Clinton family and three lawyers. And so they're going to have a lot of big institutional money. And the only way that we overcome that is with thousands and thousands of people uh, kicking in and, and, and helping out where they can. Um, because, you know, there there is uh, a desire for a different kind of politics in every state. But um, we haven't been able to, to actually break through and, and, and reach people and convince them that uh, there is a better way forward. And we have yeah. to. Well, Lee, I, one of the things I really wanted to ask you about it is I, I feel like a lot of politicians sort of feign a handicap when in office, right? And we see that as justification for getting nothing done that actually benefits working people. Working people then, you know, grow upset or apathetic towards politics. It's kind of this grand conspiracy going on where it's like they continuously make the government work against the people, fuck up, make their lives harder. The people then vote against the government to solve their problems. Um, I'm wondering, what can you accomplish if elected to serve the people as a governor of Virginia? That what can you do that tangibly impacts their lives? Sort of, uh, you know, with your all of your executive power that that office brings. Uh, how could you paint that picture for people so they know the importance of what can get done for them? Well, for starters, you know, I've I've learned a lot about the limits of legislative authority mm-hmm. um, through through my four years in the House of Delegates. So. Uh, 
you know, I've seen that a lot of authority that you would think is vested in a legislature has been just sort of handed over to governors throughout the country. Uh, but, you know, despite that, I've been able to, to do things that actually materially impact people's lives, right? So, uh, you know, airports in Virginia, they, they were paying wheelchair attendants below minimum wage by calling them tipped employees, but the Federal Air Carriers Act prevented them from asking for tips, right? So we had people who were working for three, $4 an hour in our airports. And I put in a bill to make sure they get paid the airport minimum wage, which is, I, I believe it's somewhere around 13 or $14 an hour, and that passed, right? So, so now those folks are actually getting paid close to a livable wage, right? Uh, yeah. It's higher than Virginia's minimum wage. Um, I also introduced a bill to cap co-pays on insulin products to no more than $50 uh, for a one month supply, right? So people who were rationing insulin, you know, there were a yeah. lot of people who they're on Medicare, but they have a supplemental plan and they fall into what was called the donut hole where, you know, they're, they were getting the Medicare rate up until about May or June. And then all of a sudden they had to pay, you know, six, seven, $800 for their insulin for June and July and August before their supplemental plan kicked in. Now it's 50 bucks a month. Right. So, so there are ways that, that I've already been able to help from the legislature, but there are also limits. I've not been able to get a vote on repealing the, the misnamed right to work law. Right. Mm -hmm. I've not been able to get a vote on repealing the death penalty. Uh, I I've been pushing for legalizing cannabis and using every single penny of that cannabis tax revenue for reparations for black and indigenous folks in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Um, but, but from the legislature, it's very easy for the leadership to just sort of funnel that to a committee where it dies quietly mm. as governor. I'll have the, the full extent of, uh, of executive authority. I'll have line item veto over a hundred billion dollar a year budget. Um, there, there are a lot of ways where a governor can directly impact legislative priorities. You know, the governor can, can send bills down to the legislature. The governor can call the legislature into a special session at any time to deal with whatever issue he or she wants, right? So, so governors have a ton of authority that an individual legislator doesn't. And so as governor, I'll be able to uh, you know, direct the state police to, to no longer harass protesters, right? I'll be able to, to use the National Guard to protect protesters from the police in the same way that, for example, uh, the National Guard was called in in Arkansas to integrate their public schools, right? You know, the National Guard had to provide security from the public and the police so that Black students could get into the, the newly integrated schools, right? That's one thing that I'll be able to do as governor is, is actually protect people that are exercising their First Amendment right to protest. But, but the, the big thing is that line item veto authority um, over the budget. Yeah. So as governor, I will not send any new money to corporate handouts, period. It's not going to happen. That money is going to go to Virginians to start up our own democratically owned and operated enterprises. Um, also, you know, the governor has the power of clemency. So even if I have to do it person by person, I will make sure that through my four years as governor, our jail and prison population is at least 30% lower when I leave after four years than when I'm sworn in. Even if I have to grant clemency person by person, that's going to happen. Well, that's 
So, oh God, go ahead. I was going to say that, um, you know, you've already kind of, uh, you know, done the impossible, so to speak, in Virginia once with getting into the House of Delegates. So I just think this is a super exciting candidacy. Uh, I'm really excited to hear more about the noise you make in this race. And again, you're obviously up against some probably really big moneyed candidates that have the full institutional support from, uh, you know, the the, the backing. So um, I'm really excited to see, you know, how you're able to counter those more establishment voices and how you're able to put together a campaign that really does fight for and hopefully connect with the people of Virginia, because I think it would just be super exciting and, and great for the movement and for the state and its residents if you're able to win this race. Um, to make sure that that happens, Lee, I've obviously included um, the link for people to donate to your campaign in the description box. Is there anything else that uh, people can do to help you get elected to governor of Virginia uh, to you know, help start making some of these changes that you've just elucidated for us? Yeah, the biggest thing is getting the word out. Um, you know, we're, we're going to rely on a lot of word of word of mouth. We're going to rely on people talking to their friends, talking to their neighbors, their coworkers and saying, you know, there's this guy, he's not running as many ads as everyone else, but, but this is the guy that's fighting for us. Right. And he's not running as many ads because he's fighting for us because he doesn't owe his political career to the power company. He doesn't owe his political career to, uh, you know, to, to such and such billionaire. Right. And so it, it's going to come down to people uh, spreading the message, word of mouth, talking to their friends, talking to their neighbors, talking to their coworkers, talking to their family and saying, this election is on June 8th. You know, you can vote by mail. You probably should vote by mail because we're in a pandemic. Um, but, you know, it's it's a multimillionaire, three lawyers and Lee. It's a pretty obvious choice. Yeah. And I think it's so important for people to be able to see what it's like to see a true working person, somebody who's really of the people in an executive branch position to remind them what our government is capable of doing mm -hmm. for its people. Right. So for so long, the government has been forced uh, focused on maximum extraction from the people to the benefit of the corporations, to the benefit of the opulent. And what people don't understand is that that, could, that power could be wielded uh, to uplift so many people. And uh, Gavin and I are tremendously excited uh, to watch your uh, campaign and hope uh, hope that you can do that uh, for the people of Virginia. So uh, thank you so much for coming on the show today, Lee. It was a, it was a great uh, pleasure speaking with you. Of course. Thank you so much for having me.